Hi, my name is Claire Molly. I am a historian and author with a special interest in women and conflict. Um, I've written three books on four very different women. Um, and my uh, one of the real inspirations for me is this remarkable woman called Christina Scarbeck, or better known in this country as Christine Granville, her nom de guerre that she adopted after the war. I've written about her in a book called The Spy Who Loved. And the book's called that because Christine was a very passionate woman. She loved, well, she loved men. She had a couple of husbands and many lovers. Um, she loved adventure and adrenaline and drama. Um, but above all, she loved freedom, both for her country, Poland, freedom and independence, and also freedom for herself personally. She was uh, very much ahead of her times. Christina was born into high Polish society. Her father was a count. Well, her mother was actually from a Jewish family who were very wealthy through their banking business. In fact, her mother had converted to Roman Catholicism to marry her father. But Christina was still, unfortunately, faced quite a bit of casual anti-Semitism, which was rife in so many countries in those days. And she was therefore never really fully accepted in the higher echelons of Polish society. And she, she found that quite frustrating. She was a very active, energetic girl. She was brought up around horses. She could shoot from when she was young. She would go out riding in the countryside. She wouldn't probably have seen herself as a tomboy, but she lived, you know, a very active lifestyle. I think she was quite frustrated because she, when she grew up, she was meant to be going to balls and dancing polonaise dances and fanning herself. And this just really wasn't her. She wanted to, well, she really wanted to seize life with both hands. And perhaps it's ironic that it was war that enabled her to take centre stage because of course we don't tend to consider that women have a particularly active role in war but as a special agent she was able to do just that. It was in September 1939 when Warsaw first made front page news. With horror and bewilderment, fear and incredulity the world followed it, little realising that these faint noises of a distant battle were the first thunders of a rapidly coming storm. In September 1939, Christine wasn't actually at home in Poland. She was already married to her second husband by then, and they were on their way to his diplomatic place in, in Southern Africa. They received news of the uh, German attack across the borders and immediately tried to contact home to see how they could best serve their country. But in the chaos of those first few days, they didn't uh, hear anything. So they decided the best thing to do was to turn around. They headed back to South Africa and uh, got to a port, aimed to go back to Poland. But immediately wartime conditions were in place. They had to wait for a group of ships to travel together in convoy and they had to go very slowly. And so it took weeks. And the captain of the ship actually had a large notice board which he would communicate news to passengers and one morning her husband Jose saw it had two notices on it one one of them said lost a pair of ladies pink panties underneath it said lost Warsaw and that was how they found out that their capital city had been occupied but Warsaw was not defeated the nation did not die she dug herself deep into the ruins and began her patient, dangerous life. Her husband wrote in his unpublished memoirs, perhaps this is a 
typical example of the dry British sense of humour. There wasn't a great way for these real patriots to find out what was happening inside their country and of course to their families as well there. So by the time they got back to Europe, Poland had fallen, never conceded defeat, and the government moved out first to Paris and then to London, and large numbers of the forces got out as well to regroup and fight alongside the Allies, and of course the Polish contribution was very significant. But Poland was occupied. They knew there was no point in going back there and being arrested. So they came to Southampton. Christina's husband went to Paris to re- to join the Polish forces mustering there, and Christine obviously had some contacts, because within two days of landing at Southampton, she had made her way to the supposed secret headquarters of the British Secret Services in London and volunteered, well not so much volunteered really, as demanded to be taken on. And uh, I just try to imagine the looks on the faces of the men in that office because um, she's immediately disqualified. They can't take her on. I mean, to work for the British Secret Services, you have to be British and she is Polish. So she's out. Not until almost a year later was the drama of Warsaw fully understood. With nothing to oppose the air and land onslaughts, but her small garrison and the spirit of her people. And then they sort of humour her and ask a few questions, and she says she's got this plan to ski into Nazi-occupied Poland to make contact with the resistance. And Britain is desperate to make contact with the with the Poles inside the first occupied nation and see how the Germans are organising, where the troop movements are and so on. So now they start listening. And she's got all the right contacts, she speaks all the right languages, and amazingly, she also knows the smuggling routes across the mountains in and out of Poland. Because when she was a rather bald countess married to her first husband, she used to do a lot of skiing, leaving all the men folk far behind. And after a while, she got bored with that, so she used to smuggle cigarettes across the border, really just for kicks. She didn't even smoke, one of the few people that didn't smoke in the 1930s. So she was just doing it for the thrill of it, but it meant she know, she knew the secret passages across the mountains. And then they, they were considering taking her on, but of course the other thing is that she's female, and the British were taking no women on in this capacity. They didn't do for another couple of years, and when they did finally take on women uh, to become special agents in the future with organisations like SOE, the Special Operations Executive, it was partly because Christine had demonstrated the value of using women who were less suspect in this role. And eventually they decided they had to take her on. Christine became the first woman to serve Britain as a special agent in the Second World War. And she was in fact the longest serving agent, male or female, to work for Britain in the war. I don't need to say the job is difficult and dangerous. That must be obvious to you both. Are there any questions before you decide? What made you pick on us? It wasn't just haphazard. We make extensive inquiries before we recruit our people. Do you think we're the right people for the job? They are recruiting entirely through basically the old boys networks, which cause all sorts of problems in the field when people would start recognising each other from Harrow and things. But anyhow, they disqualified her immediately. But Christine started talking about her plan. She wanted to get into Poland and make contact with the fledgling Polish resistance. And Britain was desperate to find out how Nazi Germany was organising inside Poland, the first occupied country where the troop movements were going and so on. And Christine had the right languages. She spoke Polish, obviously. She spoke English and French and a few others. Um, She had the the right contacts inside Poland. She had very good networks. And she also knew how to get in and out of Poland under the wire because when she was a rather bored countess, 
married to her first husband, she used to go skiing in the mountains and she would ski much faster and better than most of the men and often found herself going off on her own. And after a while, she got a bit bored of that. So she would smuggle cigarettes across the border. She didn't actually smoke. She was doing it for the thrill of it. And this meant that she knew the smuggling routes across the mountains. And she also knew the Goral people, the mountain people, who were some of the first organising the resistance. And so the British knew that they couldn't look this gift horse in the mouth and they signed her up there and then. And she actually uh, was in the field before the end of 1939. And she was the first woman to serve Britain as a special agent in the Second World War and actually became the longest serving special agent for Britain, female or male, during that conflict. On September the 27th, the signal of the Warsaw radio had been heard for the last time. I think it was her fourth, it was her, and Christine's last trip uh, into occupied Poland, she had been sent in to collect a very specific microfilm, which she was intending to stuff into her, into her leather gloves and uh, take it skiing back across the border. But we were now in the spring of 1941. And it was a very wet spring, lots of rain, and the, the, the winter snows were all melting. It was very hard terrain. They had to throw their skis away and were climbing. And Christine, who was travelling with a courier for the uh, official Polish resistance, the ZWZ, um, called Vladimir Zledochowski, the two of them started climbing up through the mountains. Um, and she became quite unwell. She started to get quite a bad cough and a fever. So they broke with protocol and followed the branch uh, line of a train line and unfortunately they were caught by a uh, station master's dog and unfortunately the station master was sympathetic to the Germans and so he called an, two armed guards and they of course had a cover story which they told them he said right we're going into the town and you can put that to the German officers but they were carrying promotional papers for two German generals, which Vladimir had been given to give to these members of the resistance. They're actually very senior generals. One of them, Bor Komarovsky, later led the Warsaw Uprising. So these were hugely incriminating documents, both for themselves and for these generals. So at one point, they were being marched across a high bridge over a river. And this river was swollen with flood water. So uh, Christine saw an opportunity. She kind of knelt down as if she'd um, twisted her ankle or something. Vladimir took the cue, reached into her rucksack where these papers were and threw them into the river, which swept them away. So now they were, they were lucky that they had managed to save the, protect the identity of their contacts. But it was clear that they were members of the resistance or um, spies or something. So the station master decided to wash his hands of them, screamed at them, you, you dogs and other worse words. He said, I will leave you under armed guard and go and get the Gestapo. They can have responsibility for you now. So now Vladimir's main concern, he had some cyanide powder in his pocket and he was wondering how could he share that with Christine before taking some himself so that they could avoid brutal interrogation and possibly giving away the identity of their comrades. But Christine's thoughts were running in a different direction. She had noticed that the two armed guards were now going through her bag and pulling out everything else and laying it out on the wet grass, except when they came to any bundles of money. And Christine had various different packs of money to give to different parts of the resistance. And when these men found money, they just split it up between the two of them and put it in their pockets. So she thought, here we have something else. This isn't, this isn't a political or ideological motivation. These men are motivated by greed. 
and she was wearing under her shirt a cut glass necklace, which uh, another member of the resistance, um, in fact, her, her greatest soulmate, a wonderful man called Andrew Kowarski, had given her as a love token in Budapest. And she always wore it under her shirt so that Vladimir wouldn't see it. But anyhow, now she pulled it out and she started fiddling with it as if she was distracted. She was going, oh, my diamonds, my diamonds. Of course, they weren't actually diamonds, they were just glass beads. But the two guards didn't know that, and one of them stretched forward and made a lunge for her necklace, at which point she pulled it so the thread broke, and these beads fell into the wet grass. Both of the guards made a lunge into the wet grass. Vladimir took the cue, he knocked the gun out of the hand of one, and Christine knocked the torch away, and the two of them pegged it into the trees. The way that Vladimir told this story, he said they made it to the safety of the forest before the bullets started shredding the leaves above their heads. So they, they made it back round to the forest and eventually made it back to Budapest. They circled round, they spent a couple of days in the forest. Unfortunately, Christine, at this point, her, her illness that started off as a small cough is getting worse and worse. And now she's got quite a temperature and a fever. But eventually they make it back across the border into Hungary, which was still neutral at that point, although only for a couple of weeks more, in fact. When they got back, uh, Vladimir, actually, he signed up and joined the Polish forces in North Africa. He felt at Tobruk, actually, eventually. Um, and Christine got back in touch with Andrzej Kowarski, with whom she'd do been doing some wonderful work on Kowarski's escape line, bringing people, Polish people out, down pilots and so on, to rejoin the Allied forces. Now, Andrew had been warned that the Gestapo were now after him, but he refused to leave until Christine got back. So as soon as she's back, he says, right, we've got to go. But at this point, she can hardly stand up. She has a terrible fever. She is shaking. So he agrees to spend no more than two nights and then they'll go on. That was a mistake because on the early hours, about four o'clock on the second morning, the calling hour of the Gestapo, they were woken by a banging on their door. And they were, of course, arrested. Andrew was very concerned for Christine. How long was she going to be able to hold out under interrogation? But as he turned to her, he later said her eyes had lit up. She looked as merry as if she was going to a cocktail party because now she was really in, in the thick of it and her adrenaline was racing. So they were taken away to the main police station on Miklos Holthy Street and they were interrogated quite brutally in different cells. Um, Andrew was beaten around the face and the kidneys. At one point he was shown the rather battered body of a man in the, the next cell to kind of lower his, his fortitude, but he stuck to his story. He was mainly concerned for how long Christine would last. Special agents were taught to hold out for 48 hours if they could, 24 hours if at all possible, so that people in their circle around them would realise they had disappeared and make themselves scarce. Actually, it was Christine who saved both of their lives in this moment because I checked the British files. Because she worked directly for Britain, her papers are in the National Archives. And the British files simply says that Christine showed great presence of mind. Christine decided to make a virtue of her apparent weakness, which was her, her fever and her hacking cough. So what she did was she bit her own tongue, not just once, but repeatedly and hard until her mouth filled with blood. And as she coughed, suddenly it looked as if she was coughing up blood. Now, this is the, one of the symptoms of tuberculosis, TB. And in early 1941, there wasn't a cure for this disease, and the Germans were rightly terrified of it. TB is actually conducted by waterborne droplets. So basically, interrogation and TB do not uh, go together very well. So the Germans threw her out. And believing that Andrew was her lover, they decided he must be infected, but just not showing the symptoms yet. So they threw him out as well. I think I'd have just sort of immediately driven across the border. But one of the many things I love about Christine is that they, they drove to the first wine bar and had a good drink. And then they went on. And they actually went to the British embassy, where the minister, Sir Owen O'Malley, helped them to escape.
Christine volunteered to serve in three different theatres of the war. Everything we've been speaking about was actually sort of just the prelude to her main role. That was in um, Poland and Hungary and, and Europe. After that, they managed to drive on, uh, evading being bombed in Turkey and all sorts of other stuff was going on. And eventually, that she did eventually pick up that microfilm and smuggled it to Sofia and got it to the British uh, embassy there, or the British air attaché there, who sent it to Churchill. And this microfilm showed the massing of troops and tanks on what was then the German side of the German-Soviet border and the creation of a series of fuel and ammunition dumps, clearly to support a land-based invasionary army. It was the first film evidence of German preparations for Operation Barbarossa, the attack on their erstwhile ally, the Soviet Union. This microfilm was then sent straight to Churchill, who checked it out through his ultra-sources, that's Bletchley Park, and he acted on it. He actually got in touch with Stalin, who unfortunately didn't believe him. But it shows the value of the information that Christine had been smuggling across borders. Churchill apparently told his his daughter, Sarah Oliver, that for this action, Christine was, uh, he didn't know her name then, but he, she was his favourite spy. 